Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Pop Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Tyson Popplestone, and today on the show, we're joined by Dr. Peter McCullough. If you don't know Dr. McCullough, he's an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist who holds degrees from Baylor University, University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, University of Michigan, and the Southern Methodist University. He manages common infectious diseases as well as the cardiovascular complications of both the viral infection and injuries developed after the COVID-19 vaccine from Dallas in Texas. Since the outset of the pandemic, Dr. McCullough has been a leader in the medical response to the COVID-19 disaster. He has dozens of peer-reviewed publications on the infection and has commented extensively on the medical response to the COVID-19 crisis in The Hill, America Out Loud, Fox News, and is one of the most listened to episodes on the Joe Rogan experience of all time. Dr. McCullough testified multiple times in the US Senate, Texas Senate Committee on Health and Human Services, Arizona Senate, and House of Representatives. Dr. McCullough has had years of dedicated academic and clinical efforts in combating the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and in doing so, has reviewed thousands of reports, participated in scientific congresses, group discussions, press releases, and has been considered among the world's leading experts in COVID-19. Really interesting conversation today. We cover quite a lot of ground from why it was at the outset of the virus that there was such a desire to see the vaccine be the only way out of the pandemic. We also look at some of the health impacts of not only the COVID virus, but also the vaccine. We look at the monstrous or the tenfold increase in young athletes between the ages of, I think it was 20 and 35, uh, rising from 29 a year to almost 290 a year since the rollout of the vaccine. We also speak about Dr. Peter Hotez and why we're never going to see someone like him debate either Dr. McCullough or Robert Kennedy on a podcast like Joe Rogan's. It was a really eye-opening, really engaging conversation. For me, it was an absolute treat. I hope you enjoy it. Please welcome to the show for the very first time, Dr. Peter McCullough. So what are you going to tell us, tough guys? My usual, zero, nothing. Um, it's 6 a.m. where you are, though, from from what I understand. So I appreciate you are uh, you, you're getting up and getting into it. This is an early start for you. I've, I've heard rumours that um, early mornings isn't too unusual for you. You look fresh. You look ready. Is is this a, a usual start to the morning? Yeah, I am. I start at 5 a.m. And, um, you know, that's just my usual routine. So I am in clinical practice, so I have to start, uh, you know, I get on the road by about 6.15 to get to my office. And then on days like today, which is a day, um, you know, not in the office, then I can, uh, you know, I, t- I typically start the same day because the human body, you know, is set to a, a you know normal sleep and wake cycle. So, I'll be doing a combination of media today and then scholarship. Uh, I'm very actively involved in research projects, manuscripts, uh, abstracts, uh, and other projects. And then, you know, I'll work my way through the day. Do you know my record in terms of TV shows and media interviews in a day is 16? That's unbelievable. And yet it doesn't surprise me. I've uh, I've followed you pretty closely over the last couple of years. And I tell you, it was a, a, a massive relief to hear someone with some qualifications and some numbers next to their name start saying some things that sounded pretty scary to say at the time. It's funny, actually, you rewind the clock to before 2020. And I'm sure you put your name into Google and nothing but praise came up. And then towards the middle and the end of 2021, 
you put your name in there and it seemed like it was a little bit uh, smeared, a little bit tailored in a particular direction. There seemed as though there was a little bit of cynicism around your name for perhaps the first time coming from a particular direction. We can get into that. What what changed during that time period? Yeah, yeah. before COVID, I had worked in the research field of heart and kidney disease. I was studying the interaction between the two organs, the neurohormonal control, uh, looking for diagnostic therapeutic targets. And it was a very productive uh, career. I was the most published person in that field in the world in history. I was the most published cardiology cardiologist in the nephrology literature. I was the uh, inaugural editor of a textbook called Cardiorenal Medicine, the editor of the journal, uh, Swiss journal, Cardiorenal Medicine, and then uh, reviews in cardiovascular medicine, which were originally based in New York and now in Hong Kong. So I, you know, I had a big role as an editor I was in editorial boards of circulation, Journal of the American College of Cardiology, probably a dozen really high-level journals. And, um, you know, as professor of medicine, traveled the world. I had lectured at the European Medicine Agency uh, at uh, New York Academy of Sciences, the FDA. I testified in the Congressional Oversight Panel in 2007, so I was on TV for six hours. So I was very well-known. I had given grand rounds at almost every major institution, Mayo Clinic, uh, Harvard, uh, you name it, I had been there. I'd been on toured Australia several times, lectured uh, in Sydney, all the major institutions, spoke at the Australia New Zealand Cardiology Association meeting in Canberra, had been uh, down to Adelaide and uh, Brisbane. So I was extremely well known in the world. And the one thing I've kept to is I've always cited the data, I've always been a dispassionate, fair, balanced. And when I came into COVID, one thing I noticed is that I was the only expert citing the data. If you notice, there's not a single doctor who comes on who commits to memory any sources of evidence. They simply just start talking without being grounded. This happens you know, all the time. So, so basically the world has learned to come to me for the medical truth. Yeah, it's been really interesting. Just before I came on here to speak to you tonight, I was watching a clip with Neil deGrasse Tyson with a scientific background on the Patrick Bet David podcast, and and still just yesterday, speaking about the benefits of uh, the vaccination process, how effective it was, how many lives it saved, and he speaks with such authority. And to a layman like myself, I've never been interested in medical research. I've never been interested in data. I like to, and for a long time, I've gone to um, who I was told were the experts to get my information. And the last couple of years, especially here in Melbourne, I'm sure you've been here a couple of times. You, you you're fully aware of what it was like with the restrictions and the rules. And um, I, I get it was almost like a bullying process in a big regard for anyone, um, either professional or just a worker who had any questions uh, about the efficacy, the safety of the COVID vaccine rollout. And it's really interesting to sit down and, and listen to a guy like Neil, because he speaks with such clarity and such authority, and he speaks with such confidence that if you hadn't done any other research or if you hadn't looked around about, it's very convincing. And this is one thing that I was really interested to, to speak to you about today is there's so many people from my perspective who appear to have a lot of knowledge on this particular topic, and yet we can't all be right. How does an average person, how does a person in my situation look at data or listen to information about the data that we're, we're hearing about and know who to trust? Because that's been one of the most confusing things that I've found in the whole process of asking questions. 
Well, yeah, I would say trust the people who actually can cite the data. And if they just simply say, uh, if they say something like um, the chicken box vaccine uh, is safe and effective, but without citing any data, uh, don't believe them. Or, you know, the, everything has sources of information. If people are going to make a proclamation, boy, they better be able to cite the information. So, for example, I was just before I came on, I was watching a News Nation interview. I think it happened last night. Uh, and Robert F. Kennedy was on with a fairly hostile um, interviewer. Now, Robert F. Kennedy, for people who don't know, is he's the nephew of the late John F. Kennedy, and he's running for president on the Democratic side of the ticket. He's the only challenger to President Biden. And uh, she she says, well, vaccines are safe and effective, and many people disagree with your view. We have a doctor who wants to ask you a question. And so this doctor uh, comes up, and you can tell he's fairly smug. And he goes on making all these proclamations. Vaccines are safe and effective. The chickenpox vaccine eradicated chickenpox. And he goes on and on. And uh, and Kennedy goes, listen, he goes, I'm not anti-vax. Uh, Kennedy said, listen, I took all the vaccines. How can I be against vaccines? I'm not against, I just, I just wanna see safety studies. And he goes, let's take chickenpox as an example. And then he cites a study done in California, a long-term study which shows indeed chickenpox vaccine makes chickenpox go away, but it later on causes more cases of shingles as adults. So, uh, and then he, he points out, he said, that's the reason why, you know, they don't use it in Europe. They don't mandate it in other places. So he picks examples from all over the world. And you should see this doctor who started out very confident. You know, you could tell he was, he's a doctor and he's got his, his time on national TV. And his body language changed over the course of five minutes as Kennedy cites the information. So here, here's a lawyer citing medical data to a doctor. That doctor should be embarrassed. I would never get up and ask a question in public without having done my research ahead of time. Yeah, this smugness is something that I've seen on uh, not just the national front, but an international front. I've been keeping up to date with some of the American news and obviously a lot in Australia, bits and pieces here in Europe and New Zealand. And and one thing that I, I think is a fairly constant is the smugness of the, uh, I guess you call it the the labelled experts, the people that the government and the people that mainstream media are saying, now these are the only voices that you can hear on this particular topic. And I've noticed a real trend lately, and actually um, uh, in particular regards to Joe Rogan's podcast, I heard um, uh, RFK on his podcast recently and speaking about Dr. Peter Hotez and just saying, look, I've got nothing to hide. I'm happy to be wrong. I would love to have a debate. We've debated over the phone in private and despite the amount of money which has been raised for for uh, Dr. Hotez, or even yourself, I saw you'd be willing to uh, go back on there for the debate, D- despite any of the benefits that come to um, the conversation and to charities uh, around Dr. Hotez, there seems to be a, a real lack of interest and almost an arrogance to speak to someone like RFK. And um, some of the comments through Twitter have been really funny to watch, just looking at the disregard for speaking to a guy like that because you don't shine a spotlight on a, a, a so-called conspiracy theorist who's got nothing valuable to add to the conversation. And yet it seems that these people that I'm constantly hearing mainstream media label as anti-vaxxers, conspiracy theorists, at least to me, uh, are making a far lot more sense. I'm doing my best to to be open to to some of the other well, side as well. But it, it, from from my that personal perspective it, it seems that you just uh, the debate 
it's an outnumbered, outweighed debate in the favour of people like yourself and RFK to, to just name a couple. Well, let me just uh, say that one way to size up whether or not someone has any gravitas in making medical statements is to uh, to do a PubMed search. PubMed is the um, is a search engine for the National Library of Medicine. That is the historical database in medicine, the history of medicine in terms of science. And to give you an example, about 25 listings in PubMed for a doctor, uh, that would be good enough for a professor of medicine. Most of your faculty at University of Sydney and in Melbourne and Monash, be like 25 papers, 35 papers, something like that. I can tell you in the National Library of Medicine PubMed, if you search me, McCullough PA, the number is 685, 685. Now, if you search Hotez, he's 500, around 500. That's not bad. So what I did is when this was blowing up, I communicated with Rogan and RFK. I said, listen, I said, this is a doctor discussion. Just I'll be happy to go to Austin. It's just a few hours south of me in Dallas. Hotez can come up from Houston and let, let's discuss vaccine safety. Hotez has been on the media, not as much as me, but he goes on a lot. And he never discusses safety, just encourages people to take vaccines. Well, there's always side effects. And as a cardiologist, I'm seeing you know the side effects in my daily practice. So it's very important. People want to know more about the side effects than they, know, than they want to know about just taking a vaccine. They want to know what's going to happen to them. And uh, so Rogan said, that's great. Uh, Robert F. Kennedy said, that's great. I told Kennedy, listen, you're running for president. You don't need to get mired down in this. And I said, no money. Uh, I said, but if there is money, you know, let's get, let's have a, 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 a fund to, to help people with their medical bills who are suffering heart damage and blood clots and other problems. That's more compassionate than more money for vaccines. I mean, what's come out of this is Hotez, you know, on the internet, they say he's now worth $35 million. He's collected prize after prize after prize. He's been nominated for the Nobel Prize, even though his vaccine hasn't helped a single person. And then we find out he's been working with the Chinese for years. He's knee deep. Actually, out on Zero Hedge today is a big expose. He's been working on SARS-CoV-2 vaccines as biodefense, um, uh, you know, articles for years ahead of time before COVID-8 came out. This guy's knee deep with the Chinese. So, uh, you know, I don't think Hotez is ever going to show up for a discussion because now all his past is revealed. The amount of money he's collected on this is, is too big. I've testified three times in the U.S. Senate. The last two times, uh, I co-moderated very long sessions, uh, one a five-hour session, the other three hours in the, in the Russell building in the Kennedy caucus room. We invited well ahead of time Fauci, Walensky, Ja, Murthy, um, everybody on the, the task force, Francis Collins. No one will show up. No one will show up to face me or doctors in my panel. I mean, that should tell you something. You got the nation's experts. I've published more on COVID than any of these doctors, and they don't want to hear from me. Is it an arrogance or is it a, a fear that they just have uh, everything that's going to be exposed? Because the truth is you can sound very arrogant when one side of a conversation is blocked out because there's no good points to have right. to counter. That's it. But then uh, uh, there seems to be this... Uh, and I, I don't know the guys as as well as what you do, but I've I've heard very little in the podcast front or from anyone that's not liberal media with with Anthony Fauci. There seems to be very little conversation which is uh, has any form of balance in it. So from your perspective, you, you don't feel confident that there's anyone on the pro vaccine front who's been 
sort of proliferating about its benefits over the last couple of years who would, who'd publicly debate you or RFK? No, they've been invited over and over again. Uh, a vaccine safety research uh, founder, Steve Kirsch, is, you know, offered over and over again, you know, large sums of money. Would anybody just, anybody of any academic integrity or, 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 or standing in the uh, um, public health community, would they come and just have a discussion on the vaccines? It is not really even a debate, just a roundtable discussion, uh, and they won't do it. And you're right, they're arrogant in front of the camera when they're on, you know, friendly media, but uh, they they simply won't go on any interview that they think could be a threat to them. They, they simply wouldn't allow a question on uh, side effects. Most yeah. of the time, there's just there's absolutely no discussion of, of side effects. Do you know? Do you know that our CDC has TV commercials and internet advertisements that are violating advertising law, even when products can be advertised in the United States, but they must give the side effects as well as the theoretical benefits. They're just simply saying, here, take the vaccine, it's good for you. So, you know, our agencies are violating the law. These commentators, it looks like they're making large amounts of money, uh, you know, pushing the vaccines. And we have to have a critical conversation about side effects. It got to the point on December 7th, 2022, I concluded the US Senate session. And by assent, we all agreed, the vaccine should be pulled off the market. I mean, that's the position right now. The position is just get them off the market. There's really no more, you know, more fine points about how much heart damage we've seen enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you mentioned Steve Kirsch just a moment ago, and I spoke to a couple of friends to let them know you were coming on the podcast. And one of them mentioned that he uh, has subscribed to Steve Kirsch's newsletter, and he sent me this. So this is from Steve Kirsch's newsletter. It says that the official public messaging is that mRNA vaccines are safe, yet the TGA, a Therapeutic Goods Administration website here in Australia, says that the trial is still in action and they have not received any data from vaccine companies to confirm that they are safe. I mean, I think it speaks for itself. We know where you stand, but I'd be interested just to hear your thoughts on um, whether or not Australians, particularly in regard to the TGA's um, labelling of the, the COVID vaccine and the yet to receive any of the data back, uh, whether or not we've been misled on the health and efficacy of the actual vaccines that had been available. I mean, the fact that um, there's been AstraZeneca has been removed now because of a, a number of um, health impacts that it's had on some of the people that's taken it probably answers that question. But I'd just love, he love to hear your thoughts on that. Absolutely. You know, certainly AstraZeneca being withdrawn is a, a signal that the vaccine didn't work and it wasn't safe. I visited Australia in February of 2023, just a few months ago, and I met with a lot of leaders in Australia, including I went to parliament in Canberra, met with multiple parliamentary leaders. And one of the questions that I, I, I asked him is, what information do you use to formulate your opinions on the vaccines? Where did you come up with the, you know, your information? You know what they said? They said we relied on the Americans. So the Australians have not made their own independent assessment of this. They have relied on the Americans. That's what they told us over and over again. And I can tell you here in America, you, you know, the, the, the house is on fire in, in terms of corruption uh, and malfeasance uh, between the companies and the government agencies. What we know is that f all the companies have a 90-day uh, 
obligatory observation period after they release their vaccines, where if people call the company, they have to write down what happens and they have to take the vignette and they have to file it. Well, when Pfizer rolled out its vaccines December 10th, 2020, people started calling immediately. And it turns out they recorded 1,223 deaths within 90 days. This is astonishing. Pfizer recorded this. Now, instead of Pfizer stopping, the, stopping the, the program, they should have stopped after 5, 10, 15, no more than 50 deaths. No, no 50 would be the max. Um, it, we only had about 27 million people who took the shot uh, by January of 2021. It should have been stopped. Pfizer concealed the report for a very long time. The FDA knew about it. And then under court order, when Pfizer was ordered to release it, the FDA tried to block it for 55 years. The FDA stepped up and defended Pfizer. So this is prima facie evidence. The FDA knows the vaccines aren't safe. Pfizer knows they're not safe. And they were actually trying to conceal it. Moderna to this day still has not released their dossier. They're under court order. Neither has Novavax. Janssen, uh, which is now off the market like AstraZeneca, they never produced their safety report. I mean, th these are fundamental pieces of information. Every drug in the United States that gets approved has post-marketing safety data. That's the safety data has to go into a full prescribing information. That's what we rely on for safety. And the companies have uh, 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 basically intentionally been obstructive on providing the information. This lack of transparency has Americans outraged. What do you think the uh, the grace period is so great for? Because you're right. Like, I think I could be misquoting this, so feel free to correct me. But I, I heard that uh, here in Australia in the uh, rampant flu season of 2019, a vaccine came out. And I think I heard there was either 25 deaths or 25 serious side effects. And that particular vaccine was pulled as a result of that. And then, I mean, as a cardiologist, I would bet that just in your own office, you've probably seen far more side effects and uh, negative impacts of uh, whichever vaccine it is that we take. So why has there been so much grace uh, attributed towards this particular COVID vaccine, whichever company it is that people have gone with? There's several factors. One is that the, all the vaccine manufacturers have complete liability for their products since 1986, complete liability indemnification, meaning that uh, they can't be directly sued in court for complications. To make matters worse, uh, we have legislation since 2005 called the PrEP Act. And the PrEP Act in, uh, states that in the, in the instance of what they consider you know, bio-warfare, they do consider this uh, a national security issue, SARS-CoV-2 in the United States, that the vaccines will be considered covered countermeasures. That means they're free of any liability. So on that side, Pfizer would have no business uh, reason to shut down the program. All the, the products are pre-purchased at a premium price. And then uh, we have emergency use authorization. So under the declaration of a national emergency by the president, public health emergency by the secretary of HHS, that the, these emergencies grant emergency use authorization for products and the products that are in use today, that's exactly what they are. Now, uh, the emergencies have been dropped. They've actually by schedule stopped in May of 2022, but the vaccines have not been removed. So we have a situation where we have emergency use authorized vaccines. We have no emergency. They've never been fully FDA approved. They have never been transparent on safety outcomes. 
and they're still being advertised to Americans by the government. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think Australia is any different. As you said, we've followed completely the path that America's taken. But over here, I think, um, you know, there's probably examples of a couple of states in the state in the, in the US that went down this particular path. But Melbourne was, from what I can understand, one of the most um, dictatorial or <laughs> tyrannical, to use maybe an, an overphrased or over-exaggerated term, but not too far short of that. Um, the vaccines were mandated despite the fact that there was no long-term evidence. They were mandated despite the fact that we hadn't seen how effective we were. And I, and I know that, and I, I just heard um, Neil deGrasse Tyson speak about how, you know, the actual process that they went through to see the efficacy was as good as it could be in the dire situation that we found ourselves in. But here, um, it, it didn't matter whether you spoke to a politician, whether you spoke to your employer, it didn't matter whether you spoke to public health experts, um, you went to your GP. If you said, okay, uh, should I get this vaccine? The answer was 100% yes, you should. And then if the next question was, uh, would you take personal liability or responsibility for any negative impact because the company won't? The answer was like, well, absolutely not. This is done at your own risk. And it's like, well, I, I don't really want to get it just yet. Am I okay to go to work? They say, no, no, <laughs> you have to get this. And it didn't matter whether you had uh, been exposed to COVID. I'd had COVID twice and recovered fairly quickly on both accounts. I'm a healthy guy. Um, so I, I didn't see the the need. And I, granted, I was listening to people in the States. My brother-in-law lives there and I class myself as a bit healthier than him. He got through COVID, as did his wife and in-laws in a few days. And that was before vaccine rollout. So I started to hear about people who were going through COVID in the early stages of its arrival here in Australia and speaking about it was like it wasn't a big, scary monster, which uh, people were frustrated at me because it, it removed a little bit of the fear that had been there in the early days. But what do you think it was about the mainstream media, about government, about health officials, about doctors that made the vaccine the the one-way ticket out of COVID, supposedly? Because there was no interest in natural immunity, health, age. It just didn't seem to matter. The flow of money was extraordinary. We learned that the um, HHS Biden administration COVID Community Corps program early in 2021 was billions upon billions of dollars. It flowed to virtually every media outlet, church leaders, community groups, Hollywood, pro sports teams, and medical societies. And it came in as money that was probably considered countermeasure money. It was free money. And they were told to support the vaccines. Many of these entities had, you know, CFOs and other people who said, listen, we've, we're going to follow these talking points. And they did. Uh, so supporting the vaccines also meant basically either ignoring or intentionally undermining anything that could help people because anything that could help people through the illness would promote vaccine hesitancy. So vaccine hesitancy was vilified. That meant any hope of early treatment was either not mentioned or it was uh, uh, undermined. Any information on natural immunity, look how you did, look how I did. Natural immunity was, was uh, something that was very important to talk about. And then any information on vaccine safety. So to this day, most local television stations in the United States has never had a segment on what somebody should do if they got COVID. How, how would they actually treat it, whether they're vaccinated or not? It's never come up on their programming. Most local stations have never had a human interest story on someone who developed a blood clot after the vaccine and died. 
It's yeah. never come up. It, it, you know, so these types of um, of money driven initiatives that come from the top, it turns out, are very, very effective. And it, it's been it, it, you'd almost wonder why there isn't just one rogue TV station. Why wouldn't just one uh, public television station or commercial television station in some city just take a different view? So what we found is that only those media outlets like yours and others that did not take any money, so you're not under any obligation, you're the only source of basically true information on what's going on. And so we're seeing a massive gravitation from cable TV and local TV um, and radio outlets to independent media, massive. You know, I give a lot of interviews. I, uh, I'm a regular uh, speaker or you know, interviewee at the CPAC, which is the politi uh, Conservative Political Action Committee meeting in the United States. I went the last three years. The last time I went to CPAC in Washington, I had dozens of interviews along the media row where all the media companies set up. And I noticed this last year, not a single major TV station, not CNN, not Fox, not NBC, ABC, none. It was all independent media. And everybody is gravitating to independent media. Uh, you know, a real vanguard for independent media was Joe Rogan. And his podcast, which really, uh, uh, you know, I set all the records on his program. It's still to this day, uh, you, you know, it's the biggest thing he's ever done. And just people are gravitating to these, uh, you know, really wonderful platforms. Now, in, in America, we're really worried. I want you to give me an update about this ministry of truth uh, that's taking off in Australia. What's going on? Well, I tell you, uh, you probably know more about it than I do at the moment. It's a very interesting time. So at the moment, our government is looking at, you've heard this phrase just slipping into conversation fairly frequently recently about fake news. And I mean, there had been no better time or no more obvious time than throughout COVID where social media posts were blocked and you were censored. And I mean, you, you only have to look at my Instagram following. <laughs> and it's just a connection with a number of people. You know that something's changed because just on a personal level, and it's not a um, a massive story, but I noticed quickly when I started to voice any concern about the direction that we were taking with COVID, immediately um, I would call friends to find out whether any of my stuff appeared in their feeds and that disappeared. And I mean, it's called shallow band, shadow band, and they, they say that, um, you know, there's a little bit of an asterisk next to whether it exists or not, but it's pretty clear that, that anyone who goes outside of what is considered uh, the mainstream story that you're, you're going to feel the effects, whether it's on YouTube or whether it's on Twitter. Um, thank God for Elon. I mean, I still see you're on Twitter. But one of the things that's uh, been really interesting is just this push for government control of whatever it is um, that people are to buy into. I mean, I don't know if you heard Jacinta Ardern during the, the COVID lockdown period over here in, in New Zealand speaking about if you're not hearing it from the government, it's probably not true. I mean, there's been a really big push for government control over, um, well, in this particular instance, what it is that we do to our body, but on a greater level, what it is that we're, we're free uh, to and not to say. And this is where it's so confusing for me, and it's a little bit difficult to know how to target this conversation in a really effective way, because there seems to be so many crossover points uh, in the conversation, because obviously there was the fear that people had around COVID and its impact on their health and the health of those that they loved. And then as we got a little bit further down, we started to see 
just what seemed like arbitrary rules and power pushes from our government. We had a rule where you had to be inside by 8 p.m. You weren't allowed to go past. Uh, we had a 5K radius um, that you, you weren't, or, or about three-mile radius that you weren't allowed to travel outside of. Uh, major businesses were able to stay open, but small businesses were not. It was a frustrating period and a confusing period, and it added another little um, spike in this conversation, pardon the pun, just based on the fact that there seemed to be a, a push towards tyranny and, uh, tyranny and power in so many governments. So, I mean, it's a long-winded answer to say that there seems to be a lot of factors coming into place and the government have, have, have supposedly or seemingly latched onto this as another opportunity to to tighten um, the, the limits on what they're happy for the public to say. I mean, I, it blows my mind. Our, our Premier or our version of our Governor, Dan Andrews, got re-elected, I mean, relatively comfortable, uh, comfortably, despite uh, the, the draconian lockdowns that <laughs> Melbourne went through and despite the fact that infections are still rising, deaths are still rising, hospitalizations are still happening. Everything we told was a lie. So it's probably no surprise that they're trying to restrict what we can say because otherwise there'd be a lot more conversation around the inefficiency of how everything was handled. Well, why do you why do you think um, Andrews was elected so easily? Well, I mean, we saw these uh, these videos from Melbourne. It just looked awful. People, you know, getting body slammed by the police and uh, people outraged. Um, you know, wh wh why do you think the public is like, okay, we'll just reelect them? What's going on? I think I think part of it in Victoria is um, our our conservative government. Uh, uh, are just slightly less left than what our Labor government is. So the fact that Dan Andrews' government actually puts a foot down, I think people are attracted to that. The the party that I probably would uh, vote for, um, and and my sort of uh, my votes essentially would have gone towards is the we call them the Liberal Party here. That's our Conservative Party or one of our more conservative parties supposedly. I think there just wasn't much competition in regards to who you could choose from, and I mean. Uh, from my perspective, and and it doesn't mean that much really, but from my perspective, it would have been a better option. But yeah, it was it was staggering. It was staggering to me because what Melbourne was put through. But to be fair, um, even during the most intense parts of lockdown, when uh, I was freaking out, <laughs> I'd listened to a uh, uh, what's her name, Yonmi Park uh, interview. I'd been listening to a number of her conversations around how governments start to take steps towards tyranny. And I started to panic because I thought, OK, well, it seems as though from what she's saying, uh, the, the Western government, well, in particular regards, some places in um, America, uh, especially here in Australia, New Zealand, some places of Europe, there seemed to be a real push towards this. And uh, I, I thought that would have been a decisive factor to, to see a change here. But I don't know the psychology of it, but it was it was definitely a surprise, uh, at least to me, when uh, when the government was re-elected. Re well, let's uh, let, let's just uh, you know build this out a bit regarding the media, and, and you know in the United States it's always been said that media is the fourth branch of government. That we have you know we have the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, but we also have the the fourth branch, which is the media. And the role of the media is uh, you know not only to communicate you know what's going on be from the government to the people. And vice versa, but also to prevent, you know, to present fair balance, keeping people honest. That's what the media does. And so when government officials announce that they're the single source of truth, we no longer have 
a, a series of public checks and balances. The, the media is so important. Independent media is so important. And I just find it interesting that in the United States, the, the typical household would have to um, make a decision about cable TV or uh, what's considered um, a dish TV. So the idea is, do you subscribe to cable TV and get hundreds and hundreds of stations, or do you not subscribe and just get internet? And so many households, particularly lower income households and, and younger individuals, they actually don't get cable TV. They just get the internet. So uh, in the United States, uh, the liberal media is considered, let's say CNN and CNBC, MSNBC, they would never be watched by a young person. So I, I talked to my kids and I said, do you ever watch CNN? They, they don't even know what it is. So it can't be the liberal media. We call it the liberal media in the United States. I know you guys use liberal in a different term, but it can't be the left wing media that's driving this because just not enough people watch. It's just, it can't be the case. Now on the internet, it's interesting. A lot of people actually get their news update on their feed on social media. So they go on Twitter or they go on Getter or we have Truth Social, TikTok, Telegram, and they just get a quick update in the morning. And so I, I'm actually more concerned about censorship through social media and uh, in internet sources because they i know the viewership you know listen i'm a frequent contributor on cable tv so i've been on uh let's say fox news newsmax uh dozens and dozens and dozens of times you know some of the evening primetime shows that i go on the viewership is less than a million in the united states we have probably now 360 million americans less than a million now, when I went on Joe Rogan with all the cuts and replays and, and, and more replays are still out there, the viewership is estimated to be about 160 million, so <laughs> approaching half. The biggest thing I've ever done, believe it or not, though, is Daystar. Daystar is the largest Christian broadcasting network, and it's a private pay network. They have, uh, they're in 145 countries. They have 200 million subscribers. They estimate three people uh, per subscription watch the show. So each show is 600 million, and with reruns, the estimates were 1.7 billion was the viewership wow. for Daystar, and I've done it four times. So uh, you know, I've learned about the media over time, and and when Daystar calls, you know, I you know, fortunately their studio, which is a huge studio, Daystar has you know 400 employees, huge building, multiple sets. It's way bigger than Fox or ABC. You know, I've been to all the many of the, the Fox studios. It's way bigger than that. And when I go to Daystar, I'm telling you what, that's the prime time. And they have the worldwide reach. So people know my name in Russia, Middle East, Australia, uh, New Zealand, Japan, uh, all over. And so what I've done is when I go on shows, and I've been on shows, I went on a, a podcast with a little boy from Germany. And he had 10 boys who watched his podcast. And I went on his podcast. And then I went on Joe Rogan and set all the records. So I don't have a filter at all. Uh, this is, I, you know, I go on all these shows because, you, you know, I want to reach the broadest audiences possible. It's very, very important. Yeah, that's unbelievable. I mean, you touched on it beautifully with mainstream media and, and the narrative that they push here in Australia, with the exception of one, we call it Sky News. Uh, 
every mainstream media channel was was pushing for the vaccine. And and still, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on this and how it compares to what's going on in the States at the moment. But even still, despite everything that we're hearing, I mean, I heard a recent stat just, just about two days ago that pre-COVID vaccinations around the world that we would see, I think it was a particular regard to Europe, that we would see around 29 athletes in the course of a year collapse due to heart failure. I'm not sure whether they were all deaths. And if if I'm not mistaken, I, I think in the last 12 months, we've seen an average of that many each month. And I mean, I, I, I don't understand if you can just <laughs> directly uh, attribute that to a, a vaccination, but it certainly seems to make sense that if, uh, and you could speak to this better than anyone being a cardiologist, uh, what kind of things are you seeing in young athletes, in young men, um, young women in, in terms of heart health as a result of taking part in the vaccine? Let's just take the issue of myocarditis or heart inflammation, which is very rare before the pandemic, very rare, but it can happen. A parvovirus, adenovirus, uh, there's a, a condition called giant cell. That's a, a worrisome one. In my career, prior to the pandemic, I saw two cases over decades. So it's very rare. It can happen. But all of our guidelines say if a young person has myocarditis, and it usually affects young people, about 90% men, 10% women. That's always the case. They cannot exercise. They cannot exercise. This is very important. This is before the pandemic. Because exercise will trigger a cardiac arrest. The adrenaline and the inflammation in the heart basically combine to, to generate a cardiac arrest. It's simply too risky to exercise. That is a mandatory thing. Nobody with myocarditis can exercise until they're through the illness and the cardiologist has to give the okay. That's before the pandemic. Then the pandemic hit and uh, you know, research by uh, the developer of SARS-CoV-2, who's Ralph Barrick in the United States at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's published more on COVID-19 than uh, on SARS-CoV-2 than anybody in the world and coronaviruses. So Ralph Barrick is the engineer of SARS-CoV-2. His two seminal papers in 2015 in Nature Communications and proceeds the National Academy of Sciences in 2015, he announced he created SARS-CoV-2. And it was US work that was done in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. So, uh, you know, people just simply need to pull those papers and they can read the chimeric virus was created. Well, in 1992, Barrick was studying beta coronaviruses. And he found if he gave enough coronavirus to an animal, he could cause myocarditis. But he had to give a massive amount experimentally. So in the first year of the pandemic in 2020, everybody was worried about myocarditis. So the U.S. military had a myocarditis screening program. The uh, Israeli military, the uh, NCAA had a, um, uh, the uh, College Athletic League had a screening program. About 30% of the athletes got COVID and thousands went through a screening program uh, uh, from the NCAA program. It was published in JAMA. And what they found was there was a handful of cases of possible myocarditis. No hospitalizations, no deaths, no cardiac arrests, none. That's in 2020 before the vaccines. Now that COVID-19 vaccines are rolled out, a lot of the college students already had it, the pros already had it, and they were told to take another shot. And before you know it, it was mandated. Well, in June of 2021, our US FDA came out and so did the EMA and all the other regulatory agencies and they said, the vaccines cause myocarditis. They put out warnings, the vaccines cause myocarditis. And then what happened is 
the U.S. National Football League and all the other major leagues across the world, they mandated the vaccines after the warning was out. That was after the warning. So they mandated the vaccines after the warning and they stopped looking for myocarditis. They stopped the screening program. So then the, all these athletes, who a lot of them already had COVID, and once somebody's had COVID, by the way, uh, the risks are much higher. Papers by Raw, Kramer, and Methudius show that. So anyhow, they were forced to take the vaccine, and now uh, and there's no screening for myocarditis. We've learned that about half of them never feel any symptoms. They're suffering heart damage, and we've seen record numbers of athletes die in the field. So a paper to quote is by Polycretus and myself, uh, in the European literature, and you're right, in a stable period before the pandemic, the number of cardiac arrests were 29 per year in the European leagues, age under 35, pro and semi-pro, it's a lot of people. The number of annualized cardiac arrests now, uh, after the vaccines, 283 per year. So it's about a tenfold increased risk. And we've seen athlete after athlete go down. Recently, <coughs> a case really made the news in the United States for a international basketball player, Cabrera. I don't know if you saw this or I not. Did. This is yeah, something as a cardiologist I'm really paying attention to. So he takes the vaccine in 2021 and he tweets out, he said, you know, I got myocarditis from the vaccine. So it's clear he's got myocarditis. He doesn't play, he's taken out. And I imagine he's under care by a cardiologist. And now it's 2023. And, you know, he's going on a treadmill, a medical treadmill uh, to, you know, tr I'm sure trying to ascertain, is it safe for him to go back and compete? Well, what happens is he dies on the treadmill test. Now, let me say, I'm a cardiologist. I've never had a patient die on the, on the treadmill test. Why? Because we have the defibrillator right there. We have the IVs and the crash cart. We can always resuscitate somebody if we're right on top of it. So I think it's stunning that he died on a treadmill and it's two years after having myocarditis. As a cardiologist, I am very worried, extremely worried. I think the Cabrera case is going to be one we're gonna to have to study. What did his MRI show? What were the clinical data? And can we release an athlete confidently and be sure that they're gonna be okay? Yeah, how long does something like myocarditis on average hang around in a person who suffers it? You know, we're not sure. A recent paper uh, by uh, from Yale uh, by colleagues there uh, demonstrated that um, that at a year later, about 80% of the hearts have not recovered by by MRI. Now, the MRI shows uh, an abnormality called late gadolinium enhancement. That's what we're looking at. It's active inflammation or early scar formation. And small areas, in my experience, can resolve. The hearts can go back to normal. I'm checking MRIs in my patients. And you know, I'm assuming once it's back to normal, there's no other problems that they're okay. Um, but I wonder if Cabrera had residual late gadolinium enhancement. If he was in that 80%, that's not completely clearing up. Uh, separately, papers by Jenna Schauer in the journal of Pediatrics and Young Kids. This is astonishing. Some of the areas of damage are huge. Anything more than 15% of the left ventricle is considered a big area of damage. She's reporting areas of, of 20 and 30% damage, uh, and they're going down a little bit over time, but not completely resolving. The damage may be too extensive. So I'm greatly concerned the Cabrera case needs study uh, myocarditis, every athlete needs to be told if they have myocarditis, suspected myocarditis, they can't, they can't compete. Uh, yet so many of them have just you know, not been screened, 
competed anyway, and they've died. In the United States, former Utah Jazz star, all-star, NBA basketball player, John Stockton, he's keeping track, and he thinks we're at over 1,000 high school, college, and pro athletes now who have died suddenly. And they're in the peak of their lives, and they're all screened for heart disease ahead of time. It's very important. So they don't have hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, anomalous coronaries, or other problems. They're all screened ahead of time. And uh, so, and they're in picture perfect shape. And to see athlete after athlete die, in my view, it's COVID-19 vaccine-induced myocarditis until proven otherwise. And you know, two autopsy studies support me. One is by Chavez and colleagues, the other one by Schwab, where they, they did autopsies on people who were found dead after the vaccine. And the answer is between 70 and 80% of the time, it's a clear cut case of a vaccine problem, a fatal problem like heart damage, blood clots, intracranial hemorrhage, et cetera. So we're seeing case after case, public figure, and it and it, the, the size of the public figure and their following doesn't seem to matter. For instance, many Australians know a beloved actor, Jamie Foxx, Jamie Foxx, who I know, I know Jamie Foxx. He wanted to meet me in 2021, take pictures, and we, we did all that and we talked. So you can imagine what we talked about. And uh, Hollywood reporter A.J. Benza is reporting that, in fact, Fox uh, did not take the vaccine. He went on a, a shoot in, in, in Atlanta shooting a film, and they forced him to take the shot. Uh, Benza is reporting that he collapsed. He was hospitalized and that he suffered a massive stroke uh, and has had uh, neurologic, you know, neurologic devastation. He hasn't been heard from in three months He's uh, said to have been hospitalized in inpatient rehab. Let me tell you, as a doctor, I have, you know, I'm a cardiologist, so I have patients with stroke. Typical strokes in the hospital, two, three, or four days. Big strokes, maybe seven days. And then they go home for rehab at home or in a rehab center. Now, if you're a Hollywood actor, you have all the resources in the world. Any Hollywood actor who had a stroke would go to their own house and have all the rehab people come in and work with him at home. The fact that he still hasn't been home, to me, is very worrisome that it's been a massively neurologically devastating stroke. And I can tell you, uh, Jamie Foxx is younger than me. He's physically very fit. He's in a perfect health, very intelligent man. He's really got it together. The only thing I could think of that would take Jamie Foxx down would be a devastating COVID-19 vaccine-induced stroke. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's really disappointing. I I did see the uh, uh, the news come out around him, and there was a little bit of of pushback, obviously, from once again the mainstream media saying there's no evidence for for what Benza had had reported. Um, there's there's no guarantees that that's exactly what it was. But it, it sounds like the more we hear about it, I heard Candace Owens do a pretty decent breakdown on her YouTube channel a few weeks ago, speaking about how you know it's a it, it's at least a coincidence to say the very least that. Um, it looks as though he's been coerced or encouraged or, or perhaps forced in, in, you know, to stay on the set to take this particular vaccine. As we talk about this, um, Dr. McCullough, like 95% of the Australian population, we're told, has had at least two vaccines. Um, I don't know which particular ones, but I can imagine just these conversations stir up a, a certain amount of anxiety in people who are hearing about these deaths, especially those who like intense exercise or might just be worried about the long-term impacts of, of you know, uh, either having chosen or being forced to take this particular vaccine. 
Is there anything from your perspective that we know about that can help reduce um, any potential inflammation or help reduce any of the side effects on the heart? I think you said the left ventricle um, in regards to myocarditis. What practical steps can people take to um, really look after their health? Well, if clinical myocarditis is diagnosed, I think the Japanese are leading the way, uh, Choi and colleagues, Kim and colleagues. Uh, all the citations, by the way, are on my Substack, Courageous Discourse. You simply can uh, you know, sign on and, and take a look. Everything I'm saying is evidence-based. Uh, and this is what I'm doing in practice. If clinical myocarditis is diagnosed, we're using a prolonged prednisone taper, a steroid, over the course of three months at least a year of a, a, a prescription medicine called colchicine, an anti-inflammatory. If there's signs of impaired heart function, we use a combination of drugs that in a sense are heart failure drugs. They are uh, drugs uh, called ACE inhibitors or uh, a combination of a, an angiotensin receptor blocker and sacubutrol, and then evidence-based beta blockers. So I have many of these patients in my practice now, dozens and dozens of them. Uh, what people, uh, and then we, we have to do serial blood tests, EKGs, ultrasounds, and sometimes MRIs, and then hopefully it'll get it to resolve. And they cannot exercise, cannot exercise. Now for the broader population who've taken vaccines, but really haven't had any residual side effects, there's concern that the spike protein is still in the body. Remember the vaccines install the genetic code for the spike protein. Uh, the spike protein is in the body for probably over a year, as shown by Bruce Patterson and colleagues at IncelDX. The messenger RNA is in the body at least for months, as shown by Castriuta, uh, Ogata, and um, Rolkin. And so this is a, we take a shot. It's a long-term investment. It's in the body. And now people are starting to get incredibly uneasy about how to get it out. Uh, we don't have any methods to digest the messenger RNA. And if it's in the body, it's going to continue to produce the spike protein. But we have some remedies now for the spike protein based on preclinical data. I can't make any therapeutic claims, but very encouraging. Uh, one is the use of natokinase. Natokinase. This is a natural uh, enzyme that's derived from the fermentation of soy by a bacteria called Bacillus subtilis natto. Japanese discovered it. They've been eating natto for about a thousand years for its health benefits. They've had a supplement at least for 20 years. It's a safe cardiovascular supplement. It's a natural blood thinner, but natto kinase in a paper by Tanakawa and colleagues clearly showed it dissolves the spike protein without damaging cells. So this is a safe remedy. Uh, another is bromelain. Bromelain is a natural enzyme derived from the, the stems of pineapples. Uh, that has also been shown to partially dissolve the spike protein. And then lastly, a recent randomized trial in people who have taken the vaccine and had COVID, which would be a lot of people in Australia, has, has demonstrated benefit for curcumin. Curcumin is the a, a derivative of the tuber turmeric. Uh, it's interesting that three natural substances that are available in a supplement format that you could actually buy over the counter or through Amazon or any retailer, um, they appear to have an evidence-based um, rationale for use for detoxification. I can't make any therapeutic claims because the large clinical trials haven't been done. In fact, they're not even planned, but we are seeing people get better. My experience is about three months in, about three months before you know numbness, tingling, any of these other symptoms start to resolve. And uh, so here are the recommended doses if people want to write it down. It's natokinase, 
100 milligrams, which is the same as 2,000 fibrinolytic units taken twice a day, bromelain, 500 milligrams once a day, and then curcumin, preferably in nano format, nano curcumin, 500 milligrams twice a day. That, that triple combination is our most frequently recommended combination right now. You know, and then we use other medicines to manage blood pressure, all the other complications. But this is good news. I want to bring good news to Australians. They want, uh, you know, they want something to do in the meantime uh, until we can get these vaccines pulled off the market, get the threat removed from the population. Are we getting closer to that point, do you think? I've made the call. Uh, in the United States, the rate of people taking vaccines is 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 essentially negligible. Uh, finally, the military has dropped it through the last uh, National Defense Authorization Act, dropped it altogether. New recruits, reservists, active duty officers, it's out of the military. No one's taking it. Uh, we have fewer than 100 colleges that are mandating it. We used to have thousands. It's gone. Employers. Are, now, no one's saying why they're dropping the vaccines. No one's saying they're sorry, but they are going away. I think largely it's shameful executives are just dropping it. They've they won't admit that it was such a bad set of products, but they are dropping it. Thank goodness. Yeah, it seems that even uh, even as we get to this point, there's still certain um, so-called experts in Australia all around the world that are, are continuing to push the narrative. I've got three examples of people relatively close to me. I'm a, a really keen distance runner. I follow it closely. One of Australia's top uh, distance runners, um, uh, he had the booster shot in order to be able to compete. And for about six months, his performance just dropped. He was running time slower than sort of what I was running when I was competing at a, a relatively high level. But this is a guy who's competing for Olympic medals. Um, and his coach came out and said that it was a direct response to the booster, which was quite early in the game and was a surprise for a lot of people. A lot of people sort of just brushed it off as, you know, he was an anti-vaxxer conspiracy theorist. Uh, the other one, and this one blew my mind, and I just don't understand how how anyone who can think clearly can attribute uh, this to what I'm about to tell you. Feel free to correct me if there are examples of this, but um, there's a, a friend of mine who lives in the town that I live in. He's a, a, a physical therapist. He runs a gym. He's fit. He's healthy. He's 34 years old. He's vaccinated. He had a clot in his heart, which um, he was rushed to hospital. He was taken to hospital at the very least to get that checked out. And the diagnosis from a room full of specialists was the reason that he experienced that was because um, he he exercised too much. And I'd never heard of that before in the in the the 25 years that I've been involved in intense exercise. I've I mean Ryan Shea, in fairness, 2008. I know he passed away at the Olympic trials. Um, in the States. I don't know what the actual diagnosis was or what happened there, but with the exception of him, uh, with the tens of thousands of athletes that I've watched, I've, I've never heard someone have an issue with their their heart uh, with clotting as a result of too much exercise. Is, as a cardiologist, is that something that's possible? Do you ever see that? Is that just, is that just blatant myth? Because it sounds ridiculous to, to me and everyone who I tell. No, I mean, anybody who passes out or has chest pain or other symptoms, it's the vaccine. And anybody who's saying it's something ridiculous, like too much exercise, you know that they're denying the vaccine. Now, most of the doctors have taken the vaccine. They, they can't psychologically handle what they've done to their body. So they're saying the most ridiculous thing. So it's not too much exercise. Now, prior to COVID, the leading cause of death in athletes was called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy or an abnormal thickness of the heart. And, uh, and I recall the, the issue of Ryan Shea, and there's been others that have passed away, but that's a, that condition is about one in 500. So it's possible. So, you know, high level athletes are screened. 
for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Uh, but many athletes have taken the vaccine and they're perfectly fine and their performance yeah. is good. So people have asked the question, well, how can that be? Uh, an important paper by Schmeling and colleagues was published from Denmark, very important paper. And they showed that not all the vaccine shots are the same. They had the Pfizer data, all the complications. There's basically three batches. There's one batch of vaccines where there's nothing that happens, zero. There's like not even, the arm doesn't even get sore. There's just no side effects whatsoever. There's another, uh, and that's about a third. There's another two thirds where, uh, you know, it's moderate side effects, but nothing major. And then sadly, the third batch is 4.2% of the doses. It's through the roof. The, the side effects are through the roof. They're called hot lots. So not all the shots are the same. Hopefully most people have gotten these benign shots but those who got a hot lot, you can look it up on the internet, you know, my bad batch or hot lots, and you can look up your batch. Uh, those we're really worried about. So when I was in Australia, there was a, a teacher, a wonderful lady we met in parliament. She took shot one, got a little sick. Uh, shot two, she got myocarditis. She got myocarditis, you know, pretty sick with that. And then sadly, shot three, that was it. She, uh, worsened myocarditis, and then she was neurologically devastated. She had a multiple sclerosis-like syndrome. She's stuck in a wheelchair. She's crumpled over. She can't even hardly navigate. She can't uh, talk very well at all. And so it was three shots, devastating cardiac and neurologic uh, uh, damage. And so she met multiple members of parliament. We went all through parliament. And she was a, a great example that we shouldn't keep giving shots when people are having bad reactions Maybe they're getting hot lots every time. Maybe they have susceptibility. Another paper, is, this is tragic, by Hushida and colleagues from Japan, 14-year-old girl, takes shot one, gets a little sick, shot two, more sick. Then at the booster, at the booster, she takes the shot. Her sister says that she's having trouble breathing that night. And the next morning, the parents find her dead, dead at home. 14-year-old girl, perfectly healthy. The parents demand an autopsy and they find the body's been ravaged by inflammation. Every organ is rotted out with vaccine-induced inflammation. This is called multi-system inflammatory disorder. So I have to tell you, people who take these shots, they really need to know the risks because they can be fatal, nearly immediately fatal or the next day, and the cases are coming in. Yeah. Dr. McCullough, I, I know it's early. You've got the rest of your day ahead of you. We said we'd talk for an hour. I could talk to you all day. I'm cheering you on from Australia. I'm grateful for your commitment to courage and truth. Um, keep fighting the good fight, man. I'm a, I'm a really big fan of your work. You're a huge inspiration to me, my wife, and so many around me. So, um, yeah, just uh, I, I just hope you know from uh, from here in Melbourne, you've you got a fan base. Well, thanks for having me. Follow me on PeterMcCulloughMD.com. Remember my podcast, America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report. Uh, every Saturday and Sunday, 2 p.m. Eastern, huge Australian following. My Substack, Courageous Discourse Substack, top medical Substack, graphical abstract citations. You have all the evidence there. And then my book, Courage to Face COVID, courage to face COVID.com, five-star bestseller on Amazon, probably going to be a major motion picture. I'm doing everything I possibly can. And as one runner to another, I have to tell you, thank you so much for having me on the show. Awesome. Dr. McCullough, thank you so much. And for those interested, all of that is linked in the description below. We'll see you later.